0: I remember just like crying from like, you know, that experience. I was aware that if I hadn't showed up when I showed up, I would have had a stroke and that would have been devastating for my daughter and my husband. And yeah, my mom would have been there to witness it.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Miseducated with me, your host, Tash Doherty, where I interview female founders and amazing individuals about unlearning and the female experience. Today, I am very honored to be joined by Anu Sharma, co founder and CEO of Millie, which is a new type of maternal healthcare company where OBGYNs and midwives collaborate in a modern tech enabled clinic with additional virtual care and remote monitoring to improve outcomes in the first year of parenthood. She's a graduate of the Stanford Business School, who spent more than a decade and a half in healthcare innovation and leadership. And when she's not out there making real change with Millie, she advises VCs and startups on how to do the same. So Anu, welcome to Miseducated. Thank you. It's so fun to be here. Awesome. So when you got interested in healthcare innovation, what interested you and why did you feel drawn to that industry to start with?
0: Yeah, I come from a family of physicians and I opted not to go into medicine because I didn't think I was going to work in healthcare. And then I started my career in the world of management consulting and was sampling my way through a lot of different industries But it was in my 20s, and my grandfather, who I'd been very close with growing up, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And I saw firsthand, you know, just how profoundly his life and the family's life was affected by that experience. And I think it just drew me a little bit more into healthcare projects during my time in consulting. And as I looked a little bit deeper in the industry, I came to see just how much work there was to be done. And it just felt, you know, a little bit more fulfilling than helping a grocery retailer reduce costs, or you know, something like that. It wasn't something I'd set out to do, but I think it found me.
1: And so, when you started out in healthcare originally, what were your goals for your career? What did you think you would be doing with your life?
0: Yeah, I definitely didn't think I would be starting a company. Uh, you know, when you uh, when you work in healthcare. And you see the system from the inside. And in my case, it was through the lens of health insurance companies and health systems. What you see is an incredibly complex industry. And the last thing you think you will ever want to do is to start a company in that space. It just feels too hard. It's regulated. There's insurance contracting to get through. There's so many regulations around HIPAA and Stark laws and whatnot that you kind of have to be mindful of. And at the end of the day, you're providing patient care. It's it's certainly not for the faint of heart. And so that was definitely not part of my original plan. What I thought I was going to do was just follow my consulting life and grow up and be a consulting firm partner and you know maybe go join one of my clients. But all of that changed very quickly at some point along the way, where I realized that that was just not the path that drew me. And I wanted to um, really make the system better. And I stepped off the consulting treadmill, and I uh, took a sabbatical year at Stanford as a Sloan Fellow. And coming out of that, I joined a company, uh, which was founded by the former CEO of Safeway. His name was Steve Bird. And he'd become pretty famous in the healthcare circles for bending the company's cost curve. And it was very eye-opening after having spent, you know, a long time really seeing the industry macroscopically, to look at how you could redesign care models and get them adopted by the mainstream. And it um, just seemed like more was possible than what I had imagined. I think it gave me really the first impetus to think about potentially becoming a founder myself. And I think it was like right around that time when I went through a maternity journey, which was not fun where I felt like my professional life, you know, as a result of my experiences, just kind of felt very connected to a personal problem that I had faced.
1: So you've stepped off this consulting train, you're more into the healthcare train, you're even opening your own eyes after maybe the cynicism of consulting and saying, wow, maybe something could, could change here. And then you had not only a really difficult birthing experience, but then postpartum experience as well. Firstly, in your birthing experience, you were induced. You endured labour for over two days, and then had an unplanned C-section with a near hemorrhage. And just how how does one even prepare for that and get through it?
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's nothing that you can really be truly prepared for. And I think you know, in hindsight, in building Millie, I think it's one of the things that I think we're trying to address. You know, when um, when I was going through pregnancy, I thought so long as I am sufficiently well-educated, you know, in terms of what the process of childbirth might involve, I'll be prepared for the inpatient experience. And one of the great myths that I learned is that most of childbirth education is focused around a normal vaginal birth, you know, and uh, you don't really talk about C-sections and inductions and b backs and the rest of it. And you sort of just kind of assume that your pregnancy is going to be somewhat textbook and so i think my first real <laughs> insight around all of this was when i was creating my birth preferences and my doula prompted me to think about what would i want in co- in the context of a c section and I didn't really have an answer. And I was like, I don't know, like whatever it is that they do in the hospital. And she was like, well, you know, you can have somebody in the room with you if you wish. And you can request for the baby to be placed on your chest and you can still do skin to second contact, which has a lot of sort of evidence behind it in terms of really promoting bonding and the production of your breast milk. And I was just like, oh my gosh, yeah, I guess there's all these possibilities and I'd never considered them. And so, as you said, like, you know, as I... Learned about those things. I was so grateful to have had a little bit more in terms of knowing what to expect in an induction and what a C section might actually involve and choices I might have in that process. And then what recovery I should plan for on the other side of it. And so, yeah, birth is not a one dimensional thing for most people, but we don't talk about it.
1: Definitely. So it sounds like you actually prepared a lot. You had a doula and everything and OBGYNs and stuff, which we can get through to some statistics later, not every woman in America has access to these kinds of services and, and education at all. And so after you actually recovered from your birthing experience, you took yourself to the ER within 36 hours. And what it's crazy about the conditions that you had, it's like, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but like hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets. And the acronym for this is HELP with two L. <laughs> so... How were you feeling at the time? And then how did you drag yourself to the ER?
0: Yeah, so we came home on a Thursday afternoon. And I remember sitting across this little bassinet with the baby in it from my husband on the other side. And you've had all of this medical support and infrastructure around you. And in that moment, you feel incredibly alone. You're like, oh my gosh, now what? Right? Like you have to change a diaper, you have to feed the baby, and you kind of have to like figure it out. The whole experience is so new, um, if you haven't been through it before, and if you don't have close friends from whom you've seen what that looks like, that you just are so taken by the fact that you're caring for a newborn, you're trying to figure out breastfeeding, if that's something you've chosen to do, you're just trying to establish, okay, what does my new life look like? And you know what is the sort of cycle between I have to feed a baby, burp the baby, nap the baby, change diapers, somehow in the middle of all of that, find time to eat, take a shower if possible, or eat at least even get a little bit of rest and do this like eight to twelve times a day. Oh my god, you know, so I mean,
1: just as like a younger millennial who does everything that I want <laughs> all the time, the prospect of dividing time to take a shower for myself was just
0: <laughs> so It was the single most difficult thing. I it was so hard to make time for showers. Like I can remember that was the single hardest thing for me to be able to do oh in the first god. couple of days. <laughs> that's kind of like the headspace you're in right because a new parent you're just trying to figure out a lot right and you don't feel that great you just had a c-section your hemorrhage and all that you just returned from four days in the hospital and you know if you don't feel well because the middle heel is just like that's just how it is right now but i think i just it was very hard for me to sleep that night and i remember it was because my lungs were sort of crackling and i couldn't lie down flat they would crackle even more And so I tried to sleep sitting up. And the interesting thing about that is because that's how you sleep in a hospital. You don't sleep flat on a bed, right? Like you're always sort of like propped. And so stuff was probably happening and I just had no idea because at no point along the way was I lying flat and had this like weird sensation or even if I did, like I was so out of bed, right? And then that was Thursday night. And then Friday, I remember at 8 a.m. we had a pediatricians appointment. And so the following morning, when I was brushing my teeth, I just literally felt like I was out of breath and the crackling had become more and more persistent. And, you know, I'd been around healthcare long enough to like realize that, okay, this is like one of those moments in life where it's probably a pulmonary edema. I had enough awareness to know what that meant. And just putting the pieces together, I was like, okay, I had gestational hypertension. This is probably preeclampsia, you know, happening postpartum. That's a natural progression. I didn't know I had HELP syndrome. But I was like, okay, well, there's enough going on here that I need to call the ER and walk myself back in. And that's kind of what I did. And I grabbed my mom, we took an Uber and we got to the hospital and yeah, and that's where they discovered that I had certainly a a postpartum preeclampsia and, and health syndrome and they were evaluating me for an ICU admission.
1: So it's very possible that if you had not known all these terms and been really up to date on your own health, that something really tragic or long-term impact to your own health could have happened.
0: When I showed up, I was moments away from a stroke. And I knew that that was the outcome, you know, when I uh, took myself to the hospital. Um, I remember, remember really vividly, they had to like evaluate whether there was a pulmonary embolism in addition to the edema, et cetera. And they put you through a CT scanner. I couldn't walk there. They took me in a wheelchair. And then you have to lie flat in a CT scanner. And it took all the effort in the world to look straight through to the wall on the other side. And there was like something hanging there. And I was literally willing myself not to drown in my body. And I was like, you know, because the reason for the crackling was the fluid buildup in my lungs, which was just the water being retained in my body. It was just climbing up and up and up, right? And so when you lie flat, it's like you're literally underwater inside of your own lungs. So that's what it
1: was. Yeah, super scary. I'm curious, were you feeling like guilty as well? You just had a newborn baby. So you got your attentions being pulled in 15 different directions, but you also have to deal with this quite intense lung problem. Is that something that you processed afterwards? How did not spending, you know, the first couple of days with your daughter, like, how did you get through that?
0: It was really, really hard. I remember because I come from a healthcare background, my first sort of instinct in these situations is, okay, like I am processing all the medical information that's kind of coming through, right? Okay, this is what they're saying. It's probably what it means, you know, and that means I'm going to probably be here for at least 36 hours, which means I need to kind of like send the following instructions to my husband. So I was literally typing an email and saying, I'm probably going to be readmitted. This is what I need you to wrap up. Here's what you need to do for the baby et Etc. Et and meanwhile, I'm like holding my mom's hand, and my mom's like freaking out, absolutely. Like, no mom wants to see their kid like that, right? Just trying to like basically hold her through all of it. And once they sort of made a firm diagnosis, they wheeled me to the room and they readmitted me. I remember just like crying from like that experience, mostly because I was aware that if I hadn't showed up when I showed up, I would have had a stroke, and that would have been devastating for my daughter and my husband, and and yeah, my mom would have been there to witness it.
1: Wow. And so in the hospital, as you're going through all of this, you have some pretty important inspiration coming through that first you wanted to get in touch with your midwife, Talia, who is now one of the co-founders of Meli, And you also really, I guess, felt more impassioned to actually make the changes in healthcare that you had been seeing. What were your exact thoughts as they were coming to you?
0: While I was in the hospital, I was certainly just processing what's kind of going on, but it probably took me, I think a solid two to three months before I had come to terms on that had happened. And I had put the pieces together around the fact that I'd literally saved my own life. And totally. that this was a failure of the care model. It was just completely unfathomable that for someone who had been admitted for gestational hypertension induced 10 days before the due date and had gone through a long labor only to end up in an unplanned C-section for fetal distress and had nearly hemorrhaged in the OR, that they would be discharged home with standard instructions to return in six weeks. It just literally, like even to this day, three years later, I find that completely inconceivable. And I think that was probably the part that kind of stayed with me the most. The fact that I was left at a point of huge vulnerability to figure out that I needed help. And then I had to go in and get it. And I want to advocate for myself to get it. And I think that really became the true inspiration around Millie. Yes, it felt all the isolation and the anxiety and the, I don't know what I'm going through. And like, this, is this normal? And, you know, where do I get information about this or that? All the normal experiences that anybody that's pregnant kind of goes through because they're just largely being funneled through a series of visits, which are all about Latin scans and everything else around processing this, this experience and what it means. and the sort of non clinical components of your care and mental health and emotional well being. Like, I had been through all of that. And I was like, yeah, that sucked. But yes, that was something you wanted to kind of also address. But I think the part that truly stayed with me was just how many gaps in the care model there were. Put that together in the context of this, the statistics that 52% of maternal deaths actually happen in the first year of the baby's life. And the vast majority of those actually happen in the first six weeks after the baby is born. I was like, yeah, that is completely unbelievable, right? And so I called Talia and I was like, okay, I think we just need to build a better care model and we have all the means to do it. We know what that looks like. We have examples from other countries. We have examples even in our own country for places where it's done in a very different way with, with better outcomes. Can we bring that together into something that is more broadly available to all And can we bring that experience into the 21st century with all that we know that technology can do, both in terms of delivering a really great patient experience, but also just really great care. And so that was the inspiration,
1: you know, that kind of went into
0: Millie and what Millie ultimately became.
1: And yeah, you're not wrong at all about the US, especially maternal health outcomes. 17 maternal deaths for every 100,000 babies born in the US, which is more than double for other high-income countries. But I love that rather than being cynical or not taking action, you get together with your midwife and I'm imagining like whiteboarding, figuring out what you were going to do about it and how you wanted to change the model. And so what were some of those original first few ideas that you came up with with her about how you wanted to make the birthing experience and the postpartum experience different?
0: Yeah. I mean, first, the first thing was we had to find a way to like get together and chat because my daughter was born in in August of 2019. Talia and I started chatting about this sometime sort of like the end of that year, early into the following year, and then we went into COVID. And then we were like, all right, so the hospital that Talia worked at kind of, you know, went into crazy mode. And so a lot of this was about thinking independently and then kind of coming together. And then, but, you know, when we initially conceived Millie, this was something not a lot of people know, we actually thought we were going to build a platform, which was something that could fit over what was a broken experience. And we actually built a product, we beta tested it. And as much as people loved it in terms of having an extra layer of support, both of us kind of came to realize that if this thing sits outside of your care experience, it does very little to really move the needle on cost or outcomes of care. And it feels like there's one more voice telling you something which may or may not sync with the clinical guidance that you're getting from your team, right? Mm. And so. As we came to understand the limits of apps and platforms in terms of truly improving outcomes, clinically speaking, there was no question in our mind that Millie had to be based in a clinical setting, and that meant building a clinic.
1: That's amazing that you tested all these different products, and the reality is that this is a lot of human-to-human interactions, and the emotional and mental health aspects of it as well, so... As you embark on this huge undertaking of building an actual clinic, which would basically be open in, uh, in September, September of 2022, which is super exciting. What was that decision process like? Did you feel a bit disappointed after the beta testing or were you just as fired up as ever to change the system?
0: I think none of us were surprised by what we learned in the beta, but I think what we realized was that we were solving for the wrong question. We expanded the vision for what the product should do. It's daunting. Building a clinic is very difficult. and I think it's difficult in a few different ways. One, you have to find the right investors out of the gate. And the usual path for any company that has gone down this in this direction, and there's not that many, there's actually very, very few, and the reason for that is because they're incredibly difficult to do. and fundraising is not the easiest thing for things like this. Most of fundraising is kind of designed around. An enterprise SaaS platform, or something that is just kind of like very known. Hundred X.
1: We'll solve a problem by using technology only, only software. People only need software. People don't need real other people. So right,
0: right, exactly. So and there's NFTs, and there's AI, and there's crypto, and there's all this other stuff that you could be putting money into. And like, why aren't we put this into like a, a clinic? So there's the opportunity cost of capital, and you, the bigger things we had to sort of solve for was finding the right investors who. Understood what it means to build a company like this and what the size of the opportunity really looks like. We're talking about three and a half to four million births per year in the US every year. It's a massive, massive market, about $40 billion in just maternity alone. And then when you layer in pediatrics, women's health more generally, all the consumer spend that goes into maternity that happens out of pocket, we're talking about like close to $100 billion, like every year. And so that's bigger than most of the TAMs that most SaaS companies kind of go after. And so building companies like this requires a different kind of investment thought process. And so we wanted to talk to people who understand healthcare and the levers of healthcare and people who understand what women... Um, as consumers are really looking for as the next generation of, of patients, you know, and 80% of births are to millennial women or millennial birthing people. And so, you know, when you get the right people together who can truly like help you build a company like this, I think you can make it happen. But then also, you know, there is in-person care, which means there's a space, a space has to be designed. You're looking at insurance contracting, you're looking at malpractice coverage. So there's all these components that you have to bring together along with great political leadership and the technological components that make it all work. So
1: totally, yeah, it's
0: taken us two years to build Millie, but yeah.
1: that's why. But I mean, you are a week away from filling the first clinic now, and you've raised over $4 million in a very oversubscribed round led by TMV and BBG Ventures. And I will say, as having done this podcast for a couple of years, we've seen with Tia and KindBody, I used to work at Tia, and I also interviewed Dr. Fema Sazan from KindBody, These are really great businesses. Once you have a small network of clinics and you're processing different services that you offer. And I always love to get really into the services. I'm just going to like find in my notes what you actually offer, which is, I think, so cool. It's a menu of services like preconception counseling, birth preference counseling, postpartum planning, nutrition counseling, prenatal lactation counseling and postpartum lactation counseling. So I just get very excited about the fact that women can buy these services, which is such a cool menu to have. And uh, I'm wondering what specific service or if anything that you're offering are you most excited about as the clinic is opening?
0: Yes, I mean, everything that's listed over there is available virtually through virtual consoles. And I think we're super excited about welcoming our first maternity patients into the clinic and caring for them through their entire pregnancy journey through postpartum and then kind of wrapping them with this ecosystem of all this extended support. I'm very excited to meet the first Millie baby. When that happens, that'll be, oh, I might cry. (laughs) I don't know. It'll sort of feel like we birthed a clinic and now we birthed baby through the clinic and that'll be a a truly wonderful thing. I'm especially, I think, excited about the fact that we were able to make abortion care accessible as part of our maternity care services. It was not easy to do at all, but it is something we work very hard to make happen when Roe was passed and we had planned to offer it but it just kind of became something we had to do right away and at launch and so I think that's the one that I feel like I personally just you know have a lot of emotions around I guess would be the word it feels really hard I mean it's kind of like the irony of opening a maternity clinic in post-Rome America and so I think that was that was important for me personally to be able to make available and accessible in the communities where we are And especially in the context of maternity care, where you can't quite disassociate the two, you'll have people who have ectopic pregnancies or so many situations, you know, it's just a part of your your medical care. And to then have a situation where you might not be able to get it, or you might have to go elsewhere to get it, or you're just already dealing with so much and then not be able to talk to your care provider, it feels not right.
1: It's very real today. I guess that's the thing. And even a couple of months ago, I'm sure we would be having a a slightly different conversation because access in California at least is available. But what you're really doing, which is amazing, is having great clear values and sticking to those values and saying we're caring for birthing people, we're caring for women through all different stages of maternity life i'm in my late 20s and i have had friends who've had abortions but then when they do want to have babies they can have them in in a really supportive environment which is really thought through from start to finish so i think that's what that's really what you're providing for people which is much more important and and speaks to the much larger picture on your fundraising journey how did you raise 4 million dollars because even though you have a very extensive career in healthcare and it's really your bread and butter I have a, plenty of Femtech friends who really struggle to raise money. So I'm wondering, how did you pull strings and like actually get people to subscribe and get on the round?
0: Persistence. <laughs> That's what fundraising, I think, is generally about. For us, it was very important, I think, to kind of get, you know, people who were true believers. I guess every founder that raises venture capital kind of goes through their saga of talking lots and lots of funds and they get rejected and I was no different. But I think I just knew that if I found the right investors and if I did a good job of telling them the size of this opportunity, that it would come together. Like there was no question in my mind that we were going to raise capital for this. I didn't know how much we would be able to raise. And so I did have a couple of backup plans in terms of like, okay, well, if we can raise this much, what would we launch with? Four million was more than we planned to raise, but we took on a little bit more capital just to give ourselves a little bit more room out of the gate to be able to do more things to be able to prove more before we got to Series A, and so we did. But yeah, it was not, not a linear path. It was difficult. There were a lot of no's along the way. There was a lot of heartbreak, you know, which every founder has to kind of go through. I feel like it's the rite of passage. For the first time in my life, I actually had an anxiety attack you know, when one of our investors-
1: Oh God.
0: Uh, who was supposed to commit a fairly large amount of capital, didn't come through on their full commitment, for reasons that they couldn't foresee. And I was like, oh crap, but uh, you just kind of dig deep and you just keep going, right? And so I think every day as we took on more capital, we just built more and more. And I think it gave the investors that came in later in the round more and more conviction. And then before we knew it, we were pretty far down the path. And I think the thing that ultimately swung in in our favor was being Motel compelling story, but also the experience that was on this team that was already making so much happen. When you're betting this early, you're betting on a team and their ability to execute. And I think we were just able to mostly show that through the fundraising process.
1: Of course, you had this great team. So you were able to raise the money eventually. And I'm so curious about your experience being a CEO as well, because that's a big evolution of different positions throughout your career. So I'm wondering, what are some of the biggest challenges and learning curves you've faced as a CEO in the last couple of years?
0: I've been around a lot of CEOs in my career, right? I mean, and I think one of the things that consulting prepares you for as a 20-something year old is being in a room with people of the C-suite, CEOs, board members and such. So you have a, I would say, like a little bit of a view of what that job looks like and what some of the complexities associated with it are. But then I'd also work for a Fortune 50 CEO, um, in Steve, having directly built a company alongside him from the ground up in a direct reporting capacity. And so... There was, I think, a lot that I had kind of come into this experience with, just kind of understanding that you have co-founders and then somebody is CEO. What that means is that you get to make the harder calls. You've got decisions that are cross-functional in nature and you take the long view of the company and the vision that you have for it and make decisions. And I think I'd had lots and lots and lots of experience on that in general. I think the other thing that I had like really learned along the way is that CEOs are honestly only as good as the teams and the cultures as they have. So it was very important to bring in people who truly believed in the mission and were in it for the long term. The early nucleus of Millie was very sound and standing on solid ground. And the culture, you can be intentional about it, but at the same time, you know, it does evolve. But especially in the early stages of the company, every new person you add brings their own personality and perspective. And I think the one thing that's been very consistent has been the vision for Millie. Everyone here shares it, and we know it's not easy, but we know why we're doing it from a place which is highly patient-centered in all decisions that we make, and also very clinically sound in all the decisions that involve that perspective. And so, you know, at all points, we're just moving things in sort of a a lockstep, and I want to make sure that we hold on to that as we continue to kind of build and grow. And so, you know, we'll build this first clinic and we'll have all of our playbooks down in terms of just the product and the market motions and all that kind of stuff. But I would really also just really like to have a a Millie way which speaks to our culture, that we can make sure that we pass along as we grow and scale. Mostly just getting the big decisions right, you know, taking people along and being consistent in our vision and being very intentional about the principles that we want to scale.
1: And so your co-founders are Talia and Sarah. So Talia was your midwife and then Sarah you brought on as your CCO. So I'm wondering how do you divide and delegate within that and what strengths, you know, are each of you bringing to this company?
0: There's also so many other people now, which is so cool to see the Millie family, like Growing and expanding, right? And so, yeah, I mean, I think Talia and Dr. Amy Kane, who is our medical director, really the clinical leadership. And it's really great to kind of have them paired together because Talia is a certified nurse midwife and a women's health nurse practitioner. And Dr. Amy Kane is an OBGYN. And she has a long history of caring for patients, even who are more vulnerable and higher risk. And so, between them, I think they represent the full continuum of care. And then with Sarah, I mean, she is such an experienced technologist. She grew up in the early years of OMADA and kind of stayed there for many, many years and and grew into engineering leadership positions. So she's seen pretty much every mistake that's made with the tech stack and platform and kind of getting a little carried away with your product decisions or your brand decisions and losing the plot at some point along the way. So she keeps us very grounded and centered, I think, and disciplined. In terms of where we should codify versus where we should just allow for more room to experiment, you know, as we learn from real-world patient data and patient experiences. I view myself primarily, I think, as really kind of the glue that's holding these pieces together through the lens of the patient. I have a clear vision for the care model in terms of how I want people to feel as they go through it. Um, and I have a clear vision for, you know, the type of care that we that people will have at Millie and the environment that that will happen in. And I have a long background in healthcare. So there's obviously like other stuff that I know how to do in terms of insurance contracting and building proof points for value-based care in the future. And, but chiefly, I feel like I'm patient number one, right? That's what I bring to most of the conversations internally. Awesome.
1: Yeah, that's so cool. And I think, again, as you're saying, the strength of the team is super important, especially to build a physical healthcare company. You need like the clinical, the insurance, people are going to be providing care, all of that knowledge, as well as the tech platform and the customer interface, which is also super important these days.
0: Around the experience design and we work with some true rock stars, you know, that have helped bring the look and feel and the sound the and the tone and just all about Emily into life so yeah. it's a true multidisciplinary type of effort which there are other companies that have come before us so we're not
1: the first to invent that but and yeah. I'm I'm just so glad that you got the funding because you can totally tell with a company that has even a couple million dollars in funding the interface the feel all the, all of those kinds of things i think Tia's done that really well with their clinics and their apps as well and that's really how you get patients in the door so It's just, it's a chicken and egg. So I'm really, I'm super happy that you have that, (laughs) that good rock of 4 million to build off of. It's great.
0: Yep, exactly.
1: So a couple more questions. What advice would you give to your younger self or a girl finishing college today?
0: Oh my gosh. I would say if you want to make something happen, you can't wait for that to come to you. Like you kind of have to just go chase your dream. I know that sounds like incredibly cliched, but (laughs) I think when I was in my twenties, graduating from college and such, I had this vision that the grownups had it figured out. And I think I was very quickly, you know, I started my career in consulting. You kind of see these companies that you're sort of like, oh my gosh, they're so iconic from the outside. And you see them from the inside and you're like, Maybe they don't have it figured out,
1: right? And so... <laughs> well, that's probably why they're hiring a consulting company to help them with their business. Yeah, so but. I
0: think, you know, maybe that was an early learning, which looks so buttoned up, right, from the outside, and maybe they're still figuring it out too. So, I mean, I felt like at some point along the way, I, I came to realize no one's really got it all down, right? And so if you believe that something should exist and if you believe that you can do it better, then you should just go make it happen, right? Just go make it happen and don't be too worried that somebody else
1: has it. Totally. I'm 100% on board and I love a bit of motivational talk because the reality is that in women's healthcare now, there's so many areas of research, so many areas of providing and care that have been neglected for so long, mostly because women didn't have access to these positions of leadership within various insurance companies, healthcare companies. There is no shortage of problems to solve in women's health. And so I'm I'm really, really glad to be able to talk to you and, and experience. So, I think
0: that you yeah. should say that, because I've worked with pretty much all the major health insurance companies and several of the large healthcare systems over the course of my career. And I have worked in other industries as well before I fell into healthcare. Healthcare actually has disproportionately more women in leadership positions compared to other industries. A lot of people wow. don't know this. And yet the healthcare system was never really built for women. And I think a lot of that really has to do with the fact that it's pretty underfunded and under-researched. And you know, even when we think about pregnancy care, like something so basic and so universal, it just feels like just there's so many things about that model of care that just don't necessarily seem to compute with female experiences or birthing experiences, such as giving birth on your back. And it's a completely, you know, just crazy thing for anybody to do. Nobody has birth on that back. You will most certainly end up with a tear. So, yeah, there's just, I think, a lot about the way that medicine is practiced in the field of women's health, which does not seem to particularly inform a female or, or women's health experiences. So I do feel like that's an area I would like to see more happen. And I think we're entering an era where VC dollars and I think models of care and conversations have progress to a point where I think we will see more of it. And I think that'd be wonderful.
1: Totally. Cindy Gallup's words are coming to my mind that there's an awful lot of money to be made out of taking women seriously. So I think you can tap into that and build an amazing clinic and also build a great business at the same time, which I think is, is super inspiring. So what other books are you reading? Or, I mean, you're building a clinic and you're running a company, so maybe you don't have time to read. But who else out there in the world or what publications are you reading that are really inspiring you these days?
0: Yeah, I tend to read a lot outside of healthcare to find inspiration for healthcare. You know, I read, I'm trying to remember if it was a book that was introduced to me back in business school, but it's called Moments That Matter. And it's about creating memorable consumer experience moments but doing it very intentionally without it looking scripted. And um, a lot of the examples are kind of drawn from hospitality, I would say, but I think there's a lot of application around experience design generally, and I think for healthcare in particular, where we don't really think about the consumer as a consumer, right? I mean, it's like just you go to a network care provider and you sort of just pick one based on you know whoever takes your insurance or happens to have an appointment available. Like you're not really shopping from an experience design perspective, I think that's a very new thing in healthcare. And I think there's a lot of opportunity to make that so much better. So I think that's definitely one that I go back to over and over again to find new inspirations and like just trickier moments. And then there's this new book. I spoke with Chelsea Convoy. She wrote something called Mother Brain. It's been kind of doing the rounds. Chelsea and I spoke before the book was actually out. We got introduced through somebody we knew mutually. And it talks about how the maternal instinct is kind of a myth that was socially constructed, but it has its basis in, in neurology and so much more. It truly questions the current paradigm of just assuming that mothers should carry the caregiving burden for families because somehow they have maternal instinct, And I think that's a very interesting, there's so much that's been written about maternity, motherhood and how it's broken and this and that, but I think it's a truly fresh take on the experience of parenting in general and how we might think about the role of parents once you take off the social constructs.
1: It's always society's idea of what all of us should be doing. And then also I've been really trying to unlearn myself judging other women's experiences. Like we have our own unique experiences with various health situations but it's hard yeah. to tell that to your mom or your auntie or whoever's yeah. talking to you at your friend's wedding
0: my mom and I have lots of contentious conversations and I have to come to realize she was raised in a different context during a different time right with different sets of expectations She's, you know has a PhD and is one of the academic giants in her field and sits on boards and does all this stuff but to me she's mom right so like, like nothing she ever says is right as far as I'm concerned right so <laughs>
1: I actually have the opposite experience with my mom where everything that she says is right, but it's never exactly when I want to hear it. So (laughs) that's been my experience anyway. I
0: think that's actually very true about like in the building of Millie as well. You can't tell somebody how to be a mother. We have this weird obligation of being their care providers and we're being their care provider around a journey that is incredibly personal to them and is very grounded in their personal values. At the same time, you kind of have to like tell them the limits of here's what we know to be clinically sound. Here's what we don't yet know, but the science is evolving and here's things you probably shouldn't do. Like science is very settled, right? As I'm thinking about Chelsea's book and I'm like, yeah, how do you truly operationalize that in the context of a maternity care company? I don't really know, you know, but we'll feel our way through it.
1: Yeah. At least you're trying to think of new ways and design a new experience. Mainly that, even just being honest with people and saying that you might have to have a C section, even if you're a vegan and you haven't had a hormonal birth control pill your whole life, this may, for medical reasons, be an option for the way that your birthing experience happens. So, but that honesty is what people also appreciate at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, I think you're in a very unique position as a care provider where you need to tell patients what is clinically right, but you cannot always compel them to make choices, but you can inform it and educate them on what their options are. And I think maternity is a particularly tricky application of all of that, right? Because it's it's so emotionally related and it's so much more than just a clinical journey. It's it's a human journey with multidimensional beings.
1: So your daughter, Avni, is three and I'm wondering, yeah, when is, her, when is her birthday? So the annual cycle of Millie <laughs> is an important date. Of her yes,
0: it is. Her birthday is August 26. So it's somewhat poetic. You know, she'll be three years and one month old when this clinic opens. I was actually just reflecting on it the other day. There's a few dates that just kind of stayed with me. The dates when she was born, the date when I was discharged home, the date when I was readmitted. When I came back home, the first day I left the house to go walk my dog and get a cup of coffee where I felt like you know, okay, like kind of coming to terms with what had just transpired and where I was going to go from there. And it feels very much like a full circle experience, but I'm, I'm kind of excited. I'm sure we'll learn a lot from just being out there in the world and working with real world families, but um, we hope to only go upwards and be better from here
1: yes hockey stick growth that's what we're all about so (laughs) by her fourth birthday which is in roughly 11 months time what do you hope to have achieved with Millie by that time
0: yeah I think by then we should hopefully have grown the Millie family by several more babies and families that we have been part of bringing into the world and we're sort of setting ourselves up this is sort of the blueprint for future Millie clinics. And, um, you know, I've been asked a lot of questions just around, will Millie be, you know, lots of clinics around the country? Is that where it all kind of goes from here? And I'm like, we will have clinics around the country, but I've also been been in conversations with health systems and with, with managed Medicaid plans and such around, could we take what Millie has built and tuck it into a health system or could we, bus it out into the middle of a desert where we don't really have access to care, but we could provide everything Millie really is kind of doing in a more mobile format. I think all of those are achievable things. Like I always have to kind of keep in perspective that there's so many like situations where if you rethink the delivery of care in terms of a hospital setting and a patient walking into the hospital setting to be able to access it, you can free your mind in so many different ways to think about places you can reach. And so that's not going to be a year from today, but I do think we're going to be having more of those conversations around how do we take what we've done here in the Berkeley Oakland part of the San Francisco Bay Area and bring it elsewhere into the maternity deserts of the country.
1: Yeah, that's so awesome. And I love that you're bringing such a creative, experience-centric, human-centric vision to this very neglected but very typical area of women and birthing people's lives so I'm super grateful to have chatted with you today the clinic is supposedly opening next week September 26th 2022
0: that's
1: right yes yes that's right so if you're in the Berkeley Oakland area you can go check it out and I would love to when when next time I'm in the Bay Area I would also love to come check out the clinic that would be awesome is there any other questions that you wanted me to ask you
0: one question you didn't ask me is like why do we pick Berkeley Oakland like that's like I live in San Francisco. That's where I'm sitting right now. But we picked it because, weirdly, in the San Francisco Bay Area, it's a bit of an urban maternity desert. And there's it's twice the size of San Francisco in terms of just the number of families that live there. Many of them move there when they start to think about building families. And there's just not that many options around maternity care. And a lot of America looks like that. Yeah. You know, there are, when we think about maternity deserts, we often think about places, you know, with sparse populations, but we have them outside of our kind of major cities, you know, in urban centers. And it was the most obvious place for us to put Millie in our first location. Well. Yeah, I don't
1: know the exact population, but. Definitely there's all of the tech women who are working in tech are definitely going to need that. You've got Walnut Creek, Piedmont, Berkeley itself, right? Like even Vacaville, like that entire area. There's It's a huge population. I'm super excited to, I hope I get to read a blog post or something about the first yeah. Millie Baby, which is soon to happen. So that's so yeah. exciting.
0: Yeah, no, we're very excited. Thank you. Super fun to do this. That oh. hopefully I answered all your questions and hopefully this was this is going to be useful for anybody else that might decide to kind of walk down the crazy path of doing something in healthcare and uh, maybe even in a clinic format.
1: Well, thank you, Ani. Well, you don't thank me. This is your time. You have an entire business that's just kicking off right now and offering digital and in-person services soon. So super best of luck to you with Millie. I'm super excited to hear how everything turns out and yeah, keep building. It's awesome what you're doing.
0: Thanks. And you have a good rest of your day. Thanks. Bye.
1: Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Miss Educated. I had so much fun talking to Anu and very exciting. The Millie Clinic is now open in Berkeley, California. So we hope that you can go check it out. And Miseducated has also launched on Substack. In addition to our podcast, we now have a lot of different articles. We hope you all enjoy it and chat soon. Lots of love. Bye.